In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. gentlemen welcome back to true life podcast i hope everybody's having a beautiful day i have such an incredible show with such an incredible scholar and guest an amazing human being prepare to embark ladies and gentlemen on a mind-bending journey into the realm of psychedelics and the complex history of eugenics with the renowned scholar and explorer dr erica dick Known for her groundbreaking work in books like Psychedelic Psychiatry, LSD from Clinic to Campus, has not only illuminated the path through the intricate tapestry of altered states of consciousness, but also shed light on the historical context, including eugenics, in which these substances have been studied and used. As we journey together, we will explore the profound insights Dr. Erica has uncovered, not only into the mystical and transformative aspects of psychedelics, but also the connection to broader societal and ethical discussions, including these surrounding eugenics. Get ready to expand your horizons, challenge your perceptions, and engage in a thought-provoking conversation as we delve into the fascinating world of psychedelics and the historical nuances expertly guided by the one and only Dr. Erica. Dr. Erica, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for that extremely generous introduction. <laughs> Well, it's easy to do when I get to speak to somebody with whom I'm really excited to talk to. So for those that may not know, Dr. Erica, maybe you can give a little bit more of a background about who you are and why these times are exciting and, 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 and what you're doing up there in the Saskatchewan area. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a historian here in Canada, and I grew up in Saskatchewan and had no idea that there was this treasure trove of psychedelic experiments that had taken place in my home province. In fact, it took me going away and exploring other parts of Canada to sort of rediscover the what can happen in a windswept place that is kind of a bit of an incubator of knowledge and experimentation. And uh, it led me into this wonderful world of psychedelics. I encountered the work of people like Humphrey Osmond who coined the word psychedelic 
also his relationship with Aldous Huxley, who, you know, definitely furnished us with lots of language and exciting stories, and a whole variety of others who passed through the space. And I moved on from that to eugenics and psychiatry, and I keep coming back to psychedelics. <laughs> That's a wonderful, wonderful explanation of it. It's, it seems that in my world too, I always come back to psychedelics. It's this wonderful relationship, and it's, it's so, it's so beautiful in so many ways. Let me let me start off with an interesting question that I I kind of tailored to begin this conversation. How has your scholarly journey and personal experiences shaped your perspective on the philosophical implications of psychedelics? Ooh, good question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, my scholarly journey. Uh, I worked in government for uh, a while. I was really interested in in things like how policies are made, or you know, how the loudest voices sometimes make policies more than yeah most robust evidence. So those things were kind of hovering around in my mind, maybe informing some of my philosophy going forward. And I, when I embarked, uh, I, you know, left government, I dabbled with the idea of going to law school, worked at a law firm, didn't like that. And I thought, you know, history was the place that really nourished my curiosity for thinking about different ways that laws and power and people mm. come together to explore in this case, non-altered or sorry, altered states of consciousness or non-ordinary states of consciousness. I was so fascinated by like what kinds of people are drawn to this. And it's not something that fits neatly into one section in the library or, you know, one kind of siloed discipline or even right. sort of cosmology, if you will. Um, there's so many different uh, civilizations, different ethnic groups, different religious ways of imagining how to insert or sort of how to enter into this conversation that it kind of blew my mind. And I was trying to put some kind of container on it and try to understand, okay, so how do we, how do we think about this historically as an idea? Where do we start sort of putting some edges on this context or this concept? Um, mm -hmm. to understand this and, you know, a PhD should not be a lifetime adventure. You have to <laughs> make some hard decisions. And my container ended up being a bit of a trapezoid. That is the province of Saskatchewan, which is neatly marked out as a rectangle. Um, and I was looking at the people and ideas that flowed in and out of this space that gave rise to what I have later called sort of like one of the first generations of biomedical uh, fascination with psychedelics. Of course, there's, I don't want to suggest this is the beginning of psychedelics. It is the coining of the word and a coherence that's given to some of this work in the 1950s. Um, and that's where I kind of focused my attention for, for the next five to 10 years. Does that, I don't even know if I got to philosophy on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful answer. And it, I think it paints a beautiful background and I must compliment you on your vocabulary and the pictures you can paint with the trapezoid <laughs> and the containers. It's so beautiful. I love it. <laughs> really well done. It helps that so, I live in a rectangle. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting, have you heard that book Flatland before? Gosh, it's really, it's this book by Edward Abbott. For those who are just listening, there's a really great book called Flatland. And it was written by Edward Abbott, like in the late 1800s. And it's like this science fiction book based on algebra. It's so like, it's so trippy. And it talks about being a line, a circle, but an interesting book. A little fun fact for everybody out there. <laughs> in, in your research, have you encountered any ethical dilemmas related to the use of psychedelics in therapy or for personal exploration? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, tons. Um, I, 
I'll start with this, you know, when I started doing this research, uh, I started actually working for a historian of science and he sent me off to a library in Toronto and we were scouring through medical texts there. Um, I came back, you know, a couple of years later, I ended up taking this on as a project of my own. So now I had to apply for research ethics to do this kind of historical research. One of my goals was to talk with people who had either been part of the experiments in the 1950s, mm -hmm. that is, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, nurses, whomever, who we might think of as kind of on the on the control side of things. Yeah. They were in control. They had some authority. And also patients or subjects who had volunteered for the experience. I quickly abandoned this and realized that these were people who, those roles are interchangeable in the world of psychedelics. However, I had to map out a plan. One of the things I was required to do was inform my university if anybody revealed that they had engaged in illegal activity. This is a really awkward thing for someone who's trying to get people to talk about something. So I took yeah. my own sort of ethical stance and said, well, it wasn't illegal at the time. Mm -hmm. And I might've forgotten if they mentioned it, if they did it after, you know, whichever, the time that their jurisdiction had uh, changed the rules on psychedelics. This became a really important, it, not just a semantic issue of, you know, wondering whether or not my university was going to grant me my PhD if I crossed some kind of arbitrary line. Oh, and I also had to say that I definitely had not taken psychedelics and I would never take them. And, you know, they cause brain damage. Sure. I didn't have to sign off on that, but that was the implication. But interestingly, as I got into this world and interviewed people, one of the questions they asked me was, well, you tried a psychedelic. And of course, the logic and the social capital associated with that was completely reversed to what the university wanted. If I hadn't taken a psychedelic, how could I possibly understand what we were about to talk about? How could I follow the logic of these conversations if I hadn't entered into this space or accepted a kind of risk or taken off some kind of uh, shroud of a veneer of scientific yeah. authority? And this was fascinating to me. So, you know, trying to walk a fine line, get my PhD and make sure I don't, you know, lose my tuition money, um, but also respect the authentic perspective mm -hmm. of those who had been involved. Many of these were men and women in their 80s and 90s. Um, you know, they didn't have, they weren't as concerned about, you know, who found out about this necessarily. Their reputations were already in their past. Um, although for some of them, the idea that a historian was going to capture their stories was was something that gave them gave them pause. Mm. More so, their kids were concerned mm. that I might write something about dear old whoever, right. dad or grandma, that might reveal that they had taken psychedelics, which was interesting because sometimes dad or grandma was really excited to tell me <laughs> about this. And it was the next generation who'd been raised on the sort of mantra of just say no, who mm -hmm. were concerned that this might poorly affect them. Now, I don't want to say that's eugenics um, and that there was a concern that there was some kind of genetic thing going on here, but it was a really fascinating kind of ethical space to be working in. What was my responsibility as a narrator of this history to tell the truth according to those as they remembered it, as opposed to those who wanted to protect a, a reputation or the, the sort of um, dignity and integrity of those from the past. And that continues to this day, I think, not only in how we capture this history, but we certainly see these debates taking place, whether we're looking at the FDA approvals or who should be trusted to administer psychedelics yeah. in a safe way. Those with 
expert um, perspectives. That is, they've read all the textbooks, they can describe all the things, they know all the all the words that I don't know uh, about pharmacokinetics and whatever, pharmacogenetics, um, or those who have logged this many hours uh, on their own voyages or have sat with others and have accumulated a kind of experience that doesn't fit neatly into medical schools. Long answer, sorry. <laughs> no, are you kidding me? The longer, the more intricate, the better. It's sort of like a trip in itself. You know what I mean? Like I like to see it unfolding in front of me. So thank you for it. It's, you know, if we see that history, or if we look at past relevant behavior as the best predictor of future behavior, what might be playing out nowadays if we look back to the past? Like, and I think you touched on it really well. Like we do see the same echo happening in front of us right now. What? What, if we look at the history, what might the future hold for us? I know it's speculation, but what do you think? Yeah, I mean, two things kind of pop to mind as you ask that question. I mean, one is how we measure evidence in this space, yes. um, whether that's, you know, experience driven evidence or even like what evidence counts. I mean, are we measuring a pharmacological effect uh, of a substance and its interaction with our bodies and minds? Or, you know, does that pharmacological effect also interact with the lighting and the music and the ambient space that we are in? You know, psychedelic people, uh, and I'm going to say it that way, you know, researchers, yeah. ceremonial attendees, yes. you know, underground, Grateful Dead lovers, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll cast a wide net here. Um, recognize that there's an interaction between the set and the setting. So your mindset, the substance itself, and the setting and even pieces outside of that. So what are you thinking about as you enter into this space uh, or into this idea even? Um, and how do you make sense of it afterwards? What meaning do you ascribe to it? And it may be from nothing to something massive. And all of those things are very difficult to put in a checklist mm -hmm. that satisfies some of our quantified markers of success or risk. And those kinds of assessments are out of sync, I think with the way that psychedelics have been studied in the past. And again, I'll, I'll say that and be inclusive of studied or worshiped even in the past. So if you're sitting in a peyote ceremony, again, you're not going through a DSM checklist of the reasons why you're sitting there or a DSM or whatever other kind of checklist of these are the things I felt. Saw, you know, oh no, I saw, you know, a pentagon, not an octagon. Well that, you know, right. these, desire to sort of manage and, and then ultimately scale up those experiences so that we can have repeatable, consistent experiences is just not part of the psychedelic space. And there's, a, I think, an inherent tension then in how we measure the the veracity of those experiences or their uh, therapeutic, perhaps, benefits and how we measure success. Mm. So it might not even be felt in the first eight to 38 hours, um, success in, even if we're just talking about therapy was often captured, you know, a couple of years later, I'm like, you know what, that experience that I thought was really yeah. hard was so important for me. And it's a combination of things that leads people to sort of reflect back and see those. And I, that was impressed upon me when I was interviewing patients and subjects, I say subjects because there's a question of volunteer and yeah not coercive, but um, people had options of different right. therapies they could go through. Um, and this was, in some cases, it was 40 and up to 44 years after their 
their single dose um, LSD experience. And um, people spoke to me with incredible emotion, sometimes weeping as they explained how important that intervention was for them. Uh, one man told me that he thinks it saved his life. And yet reading his case file from that experience is like, yeah, it was good. It's kind of like <sighs> my 12 year old son, right? How yeah. was cool? It's fun. You know, it, so it, it sort of accumulates these sense of meaning. And I think our capacity to capture that and then instrumentalize it into our modern world of medicine, it, it, there's a, an inherent tension there. So it's so, so true. It, you could even broaden it out to say that our idea of success as humans, you know, let, let alone what a success is in a trial, but our definition of success as humans is it's, it's kept in this small trapezoid container of like, <laughs> of what you can measure, you know, it's yeah. like, okay, it's only Euclidean, You're, you know, we're not going to rid of this non-Euclidean space over because we can't measure it. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Maybe, maybe maybe the results of success should be measured in the thankful, pleasurable tears of the family members who see the progress of the people, right? Like maybe that's a better barometer. <laughs> it's interesting you raise that because one of the uh, one of the plans or protocols, um, and some I'm using a bit of modern language that they didn't yeah. use. But, um, when they when folks here in Saskatchewan were first investing in those uh, alcohol trials. So using LSD and mescaline in the first instances to treat alcoholism, um, which I can explain if you want, but the the idea was that you were gonna like take people through this sort of really condensed psychotherapeutic experience. It was in, for some cases, it was gonna help people sort of glimpse what hitting rock bottom might feel like. Right. You know, it was a peek into that space and almost to frighten someone into recognizing the dramatic need to change their behavior. And for others, the experience, although that was the intention, for others, the experience was not sort of that fear factor or that glimpse into this, you know, future reality, but instead it shifted people into a spiritual space and put them in conversation with a different kind of spiritual reality that they felt they had been ignoring or that they had, you know, they stated that they had been ignoring. In either case, people came away, and this were only mostly men who were treated this way, these men came away from it with a a deeper appreciation for who they were and what their worth was, that value, which was not, again, in, in like quantified and, you know, I can make this much money, um, but like, I need to pay attention to my kids. Yeah. My wife has been putting up with my shitty behavior and I quote, you know, this kind of thing. And so as one of the protocols for measuring success, there were two year follow-ups um, they started working really closely with Alcoholics Anonymous, who was very much on board with this perhaps this uh, specific program uh, in some parts of North America, not everywhere. Um, but Alcoholics Anonymous was great because they kept regular follow-ups. They also interviewed wives. So I mentioned it was mostly men. Mm -hmm. It was these wives who were like, okay, so he says he's better, but, and one of the checkmark things was, is he less of an asshole? <laughs> Explain. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I not. Um, so there, there was an attempt to really measure that in a different way and use these sort of subjective responses. And you can imagine the handwritten yeah. notes that explain answers to that. You know, again, this is not something you can run through a computer and spit out an answer and say, okay, our, our, our rates are this. Mm -hmm. um, they did ultimately quantify things in an effort to try to get some funding to support this program. But initially, the masses of 
case studies and the, the subjective information that was uh, that was solicited was really quite impressive. And you know how to measure this? Like, are you a good member of society? All right. Well, what does that mean? Are you good to your neighbors? Uh, you know, things like this. And what is good? You know, you, you can see how it kind of you go down a rabbit yeah. trail trying to determine this. But I think the the desire to capture that kind of information was in itself a kind of that that's part of the ethos of that early generation of psychedelic researchers, I think, is kind of blowing open the field and reimagining what is important, what is valuable as evidence. Um, and I think it's that's too bad that that kind of got thrown out with the bathwater, if you will. But there are possibilities going forward to rethink what we what evidence we collect or what is meaningful or valuable as we understand, you know, wellness or how does this contribute to better? Yeah, that's a wonderful answer. And I that should be that same question. Is your husband less of an asshole or are you less of an <laughs> asshole? We could probably write it, you know, like that yeah. should be on every single one. <laughs> And if you're, if you are getting better, you should have to answer that question and be like, yes, here's how I was an asshole. Here's the things that I was doing. Here's the things I'm working on. Here's what my wife said about what I did. Look, it's not nice, you know, it's I, so true. I mean, I think that some of that language got, uh, you know, chafed away. Uh, some of that might've been a bit, you know, in the, in the hallways, um, the questions of ego really kind of come into this space now in the 1950s a lot of the psychiatric profession in the in the united states and in canada even and certainly in parts of western europe were trained in psychoanalysis so some of this terminology and some of these approaches were sort of part and parcel of the training at that time as that shifted away and we move more into a psychopharmaceutical mm. paradigm uh, we lose some of that, um, some of the language and vocabulary that's associated with measuring talk therapy, or it changes, it shifts. Um, and, you know, there's, the, there are complaints about the sort of dominance of psychoanalysis. But I think there's also something maybe lost in like, okay, let's, let's talk about ego. And whether you want to go full Freud, or you want to back off, and Jung was a little more hip to psychedelics, yeah. so we can go there. But there's, you know, there's something there that I think is not just a remnant of the past, but actually something that could be resurrected going forward as we think about how do we manage subjective information and harness it for, you know, measuring these outcomes as well. Yeah, it really gives us an opportunity to redefine the future moving forward, right? And if, yeah, you know, it reminds me of a, there's a great book called Metaphors in the Mind. And in that book, they mm -hmm. talk about how the only way we can learn new knowledge is by using metaphors, comparing things to the old. And in some hmm. ways, maybe we're at this vista. Maybe we're at this, you know, maybe we're at Dr. King's mountaintop getting a quick peek look down and saying like, okay, let's, oh, look where we were over there. Let's, let's, let's rewind it and, and take that path again or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anything linear about this. Right. Um, and that's, that's exciting to me. You know, the idea that we can actually, you know, learn from the past, not simply to yeah. improve upon a linear path, but, you know, maybe some of this was like a heavy handed response. I mean, I, I think we, I think a lot of people agree that, you know, the prohibition on drugs, the war on drugs was a heavy handed response yeah. to a lot of things. And so as we peel back layers of that and deal with the consequences of it, you know, what parts, I, I don't think, I'm not going to advocate for like, you know, drugs everywhere, put them in the water supplies, no problem, you know. I might have said that before, but now as a mother, I'm like, whoa, whoa, right. actually, <laughs> like, you know, we need to have 
you know, I talked about this with somebody in the recently, you know, there are, you know, we used to have green lights on drugs and red lights on drugs. And like, we could proceed with caution in a few cases. And, but as we do that, instead of accumulating evidence through one particular uh, metric, what if we widen that and imagine, you know, who do we listen to? Who do we trust? Um, and where are people getting information about choices that they make about taking these substances in the first place? You know, it might be school, it might be parents, and it's probably a lot of peers. Yeah. And we don't typically use those measures as we think about developing curricula for drug information or informing the FDA or Health Canada for that matter. So I think, you know, taking stock of the ways in which people engage with drug information is perhaps a first step to also, or a step towards thinking, how do we build effective drug information? Because, I mean, the pandemic affected us all in interesting ways, but there were real splits and I think real fissures in this idea that we should trust science. Now, some people did, some people didn't, but it created these real tensions. And I think that same thing is playing out in other aspects and psychedelics are one of them. Yeah, I think, I think there's a wedge between science and company science. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> It's 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 the similar wedge. It's between um, Brave New World and the island. You know, in some ways, like those, here's two real realities by one great thinker that could be emerging right now. You have any thoughts on that? Oh, that's a great question. Always talk to me is so cool. Um, so Island was written after he'd had mescaline and LSD, and Brave New World was not. So we we can go there. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, you know. I'm going to answer this in a probably unsatisfying way, but, you know, I think that I, I worked on a book project recovering these letters between Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond. Huxley's house had burnt down and he lost, you know, not only a lot of his letters, but his library. And it's just a real loss to all of us that much of this information was gone. But Humphrey Osmond, for whatever reasons, um, kept copies of his own outgoing letters and Huxley's incoming letters. So we have this rare opportunity to sort of, you know, get into the minds of these two men who, you know, grew up in this part of England, but were separated by 20 years and became fast friends in a masculine experience that they had in 1953 together. I mean, Osmond was the one who brought a masculine in the first place. And these candid letters, as they kind of work through some of these questions, not, not Brave New World versus Island, but the question of like, are we headed into a dystopic future? Are we headed in something a little bit more promising? And Island, I think, has shades of both. Yeah. You know, it we kind of could oscillate on this. And, you know, I think Huxley was really fascinated with some of these ideas that, you know, there are these the intrinsic power of these substances to change our minds, both in evolutionary ways, hearkening back to the long legacy of biologists and his family, and including his brother, head mm -hmm. of the Eugenics Society. Um, and and also like, you know, the philosophical existential angst that accompanies some of these movements. And I mean, he's delightful to read, even when you feel sad reading it because he takes you to dark places. Um, but his interest and, in, you know, his, his just desire to articulate some of these complicated ideas in ways that pull you in and I think grip you is just, it, it's a fascinating contribution to this, to this entire conversation. Yeah, answering your question. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's, it's well done. I, I I love the way it was done. 
I'm often drawn to the scene in the island where children at the age of 13, they go with a mentor and climb this mountain and sit in front of a church and have this first experience where they learn, I mean, there's a lot more going on than I knew. And what a beautiful idea. And it seems on some level, the idea of rituals or rites of passage mm-hmm. have been cheapened in, in a lot of the ways. And, and you know, almost there's, there almost seems to be an absence of the true richness of those rituals and stuff in today's society. I'm hopeful to kind of see some of that coming back. Wouldn't that be beautiful? You know, it's interesting. You're reminding me that, so he sat in a number of ceremonies as, um, mm-hmm. as a curious observer of these, uh, of all kinds of, you know, psychedelics or phenarathimes or all these different words they played with. And he sat with his wife as she succumbed to her final stages of cancer, his first wife, Maria. Um, and he wrote really tenderly. And these, these letters are actually included in an appendix because they were, they're a little bit different. But he wrote very tenderly about you know, talking her through as she was losing consciousness, um, as she was you know, succumbing to the last hours of her, of her life. He talked about sitting in ceremony and spoke to her in he describes you know he spoke to her in calm tones trying to like mimic the the rhythm of the drums that had accompanied mm-hmm. their experiences um on a reservation in california uh, forgive me i can't remember the, the name of it off the top of my head I, I think it's a navajo reservation though in any event um he he reflects in this moment upon like these different transitions and you know how psychedelics might be valuable in easing the anxiety associated with the death transition. And of course, he famously asks for LSD on his own deathbed, which his then wife, Laura, um, injected. And he talks about, you know, releasing these mortal strands and ushering someone gently into this other reality. And, and of course, he gives us beautiful words. But that idea of transition, I think, is something not only, you know, he captures it, but sitting in those ceremonies, those indigenous ceremonies had a much, much longer tradition of using ceremony around ideas of transition, whether mm. those are life transitions, coming into the world, transitioning into adulthood, transitioning as you prepare for some upcoming event, might be war, um, mm. seeking wisdom in the face of famine. Um, so different kinds of transitions. And I, I don't think he clearly and explicitly says, I learned this from them. Right. <laughs> But you can see it creeping into his his work, especially after he starts sitting in those spaces. Osmond also sat in ceremony in Saskatchewan. I've recently been in touch with some of the grandchildren of the ceremony that had hosted him. And we've been talking a little bit about this. And what's fascinating to me is the the way that children are incorporated into these conversations, not just acknowledging them, but they sit with their elders. And they learn about these things and that not only kind of wholesome conversation or these wholesome ways but it's a form of we'll say today harm reduction in learning about respecting the ceremony and the substances that accompany them and it struck me that you know there's there's something really fascinating that we can learn from you know certainly going past these guys who tripped in tweed but you know move out to other <laughs> realms <laughs> <laughs> super funny they did <laughs> they totally did <laughs> but you know looking at some of these other even more ancient practices of thinking about not psychedelics but thinking about transitions and where psychedelics fit into that 
So kind of rearranging the priorities, I guess, if you think about describing the ceremony, I think that my friends, I don't know, my, my, the new folks I've met in this ceremonial context um, would say that this isn't about the drug. They certainly wouldn't call it that. This isn't about the medicine. This isn't even about peyote. This is about, you know, a learning. This is a researching for something. You know, the dis the description actually changes and the prioritization is is rearranged. It's that kind of knowledge that leaves giant holes in the ideas of spirituality of the West. And when I look at sometimes there's another great book called The Fourth Turning, and it talks about like the generational trauma and the different generations we're going through. And especially when we see so much of this, if, if we just look at all of us as one organism, like the boomer class throughout the world is this giant class of people. And a lot of them are knocking on, on the door of transition of the, the mortality experience right now. And mm -hmm. with that comes the unrealized dreams that may or may not have been achieved. And talk about a transition. No wonder there's so much going on. No wonder psychedelics or, or mushrooms or, or these, these medicines are being brought to the forefront right now. It's like, we need this more than ever. I see it in people's lives that I love that are so frightened right now. And I think about the way they've been conditioned their whole life to, hey, we don't need the family anymore. You drop the kids no. out there, send mom and dad to this place, and you guys go to work. And, and, and we tried this thing, and it had radical ramifications that maybe unrealized consequences that we didn't know. But here we are, and we have this time to reflect. And it seems looking back to the – to a uh, um, you know, a, a, a sort of renaissance, I guess renaissance is a pretty good word for it, you know, but <laughs> maybe we need to look back at the time of ceremony or another the time of ceremony to understand how to, to under, to reintegrate the idea of death. It seems like death in the West is something we're so fearful of. Maybe these people you've been speaking with are, are the, the light on the path. Well, maybe you can explain more about the relationship you've been talking to with the, with the grandchildren. The children. Yeah, I mean, and, and I can't go into to too much detail there sure. because it's it's not um, you know we're just we're just building a relationship. Sure. Um, but I I mean, I think I'll answer it in a different way. Yeah, please. I think there's a reason why psychedelics emerged in the late 1940s, 1950s, and sort yeah. of captivated the uh, energy and you know. The passion of a number of different mm -hmm. kinds of researchers and thinkers you know that they gave it some coherence they gave it language they like you know it had its it had a kind of momentum made an imprint yeah. yep. it's not surprising to me that it's re-emerging now like again I'll, I'll try to be a historian here and be like oh yeah there's these big trends and i'm not going to talk about specifics but you know during the cold war i think there were legitimate like legitimate anxieties this was not you know the rise of anxieties because there was something in the water supply that was causing a physiological response. I think it was legitimate to be concerned about nuclear war. It was legitimate to be concerned about, you know, population bomb, if you will. Now, not in every part of the world here in Canada, you know, there's still some space left, but, you know, <laughs> despite that, these concerns about food supply, concerns about, you know, rampant poverty and disparity in the world and you see, you know, efforts to try to ameliorate that, whether it's, you know, green revolution that has some kind of boomerang effects. But there were these, you know, efforts to try to, like, think about the world in a different way. Start seeing pictures of the world, you know, at this time. 
also, you know, that was inspired by an acid trip. So, you know, we thank psychedelics for that. Um, I think it's reasonable that today um, we have existential angst ricocheting through our lives. And it is not all, you know, the, I don't think we can sort of pinpoint the root causes as, again, like something that if we just tamper with our, our uh, physiology in this way, we'll fix it mm -hmm. or something like that. This is real. I mean, this is, I think these are things that can't be solved with a pill. I'm coughing a little bit today. And if you were walking around my city, it's, I'm choking on smoke. Mm. The wildfire smoke has been causing my kids to have to have recesses inside. They can't, you know, play sports outside and people with any kind of breathing problems or people of a certain age are encouraged to stay inside and avoid, you know, outside has become toxic mm -hmm. this should make us anxious this should make us sad and angry and we should feel the full sort of range of emotions that and it's bigger than us right yep, yep. so me turning off my lights or you know whatever individual act i might do isn't going to solve that just like a pill isn't going to make me okay with what i see and experience outside but i think that kind of the, the sort of huge problems that you know we kind of throw our hands up sometimes and especially us in the west you know like you know i'm just gonna stick my head down wait for this to pass find the pill to make it go away either so i forget about it or i don't think about it it should make us uncomfortable and i love or i feel optimistic about how psychedelics can help to bring different ideas and different minds together to also recognize like what actually is the problem here um, so that we can get out of, we talk about psychedelics being good for changing our minds, if I borrow Michael Pollan's phrasing, and, you know, gets us out of those rutted, rutted thinking. So that's good if you have post-traumatic stress disorder, or if you have a number of different pathological conditions. But I think it's also good for our culture uh, and our evolution, if you will, as humans, yeah. to get out of our rutted ideas about maybe we can't fix it by doing the same things we've been doing. Maybe we need to think differently and I'm picking on the environment because it's, I'm choking on it right now. Yeah. But I mean, there are real opportunities here, I think, to think with psychedelics, whether metaphorically or yeah. in, in, in literally, um, to reimagine what we want this future to look like. That's really well said. It, I've been toying with this idea that the world talks to us through us in the same way that for me, I've been I've been playing a lot with like Ethlad lately and it's the the uncompromising clarity of what a dummy I am is so beautiful. <laughs> but it's one of the ways it's so beautiful is that I see the things happening in my life and then I can see them in my garden and then I can see them in the world. I can see the same patterns and it's like oh maybe the way we fix this is by each one of us becoming the best version of ourselves. You know mm -hmm. and, and and you start to see these patterns. Like you look at the medical system we currently have with addiction that seems to be a conveyor belt of, okay, get off this, take this pill and get back on here, go to this therapy. You know, the same way that Xerox sells me toner. Hey, buy the machine for free. And then you get, I got to buy this all the time. And it's like, this company just borrowed this model of sickness from here. So maybe the, the world of psychedelics is showing us like, okay, let's, this whole model has permeated our being. 
We need to get rid of that. Yeah, we should be furious about this smoke. We should be furious yeah. about these people. Like this, maybe it's not these people. Maybe it's us. Like when we start looking yeah. at us, we can change it. Because you don't have that. It's it's not the either or. It's the both and, right? Like, hey, we're doing it. Hey, I'm responsible for it. I got to fix this, you know, in my own way. Yeah, I do think that, you know, avoiding that kind of binary logic of like yeah. us and them. You know, yeah. That's something we can learn from the Cold War. Like they, yeah. the Cold War people did it really well. Like bad guys, good guys, <laughs> totally. good drugs, bad drugs, you know, like really, this is really clear. Right. Um, but we could do better. We could probably mm -hmm. learn from that and recognize that, you know, um, putting people into categories and fairly placed people into conditions that they, you know, where they had nowhere to go, um, that didn't actually help us to be better humans. Um, it helps some people be better humans maybe, or, or, you know, be more successful or whatever. We can come back to that, but, um, <laughs> the, the circular conversation from before, but, but I think we can do better and, and recognize that grayness or blurriness complexity is actually a strength and we might be more sustainable, uh, people going forward if, and, and I don't mean just with the environment, but we might be able to think about integrating psychedelics into our world in a more sustainable way mm -hmm. if we accept and maybe even embrace that complexity that it isn't you know it's all or nothing we need some caution and and here again i, I think back to some of the indigenous approaches and i don't mean to put yeah. them all in the same basket they're diverse approaches but one of the things that keeps coming back to me as i as i explore this or read other people's work that's exploring this and which is more true the deference to the plants, the deference to the substance, the respect that is so high on the list is really, really important. It's, it's very different from, you know, I have a cough, I'm gonna go take some medication. I'm not really gonna think about it. I'm certainly not gonna make a prayer. I'm just gonna hope that it works. And if not, I'm gonna be upset, right? Mm -hmm. But giving deference, paying attention, um, reflecting, on you know what does it mean to have this relationship with this substance mm -hmm. or plant those elements you know we've we've really moved away from that i think in a kind of western model but they might have real meaning as we think about bringing this back into a conversation that is a little more holistic a little bit more sustainable yeah just the disrespect we have for relationship to all of us like that that's one of the things that's so mind blowing. We don't even we don't even respect relationship anymore. It's more of like I always think of Guy Debord's book, Spectacle of Society. And when we talk about being like it seems that we have moved from being into having and from having mm. into the appearance of having. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Accumulation. It's just uh, yeah. it's well, I've got books accumulating behind me and there's some more in front of me here. I, I, can't I love it. <laughs> Okay, I, this is so much fun. I, I, I've only like asked like two questions on here, but you're such an awesome person to talk to. Let me find like a really good one in here that I. Cool, and I got to plug my power cord in. I just realized. Yeah, apologize. Yeah, of course, <laughs> do it. Hopefully this works. All right. Yeah. <laughs> 
So your work often highlights the role of gender in the history of psychedelics. How might feminist philosophies intersect with the study of psychedelics and their impact on society? Oh, great question that I will blunder because my sense of feminist philosophy is borrowed from my friends who talk to me about it. Um, Fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was sort of almost dared uh, by a friend, like, you know, why this actually comes back to a, an answer I was thinking about for one of your other questions about things we can learn from. So yeah. I'll, I'll back up for a second. Sure. I think another thing we might learn from is, you know, the power of communication and information. And if we compare the 1950s to the 2020s, you know, our capacity for generating information and, you know, for me to talk to a guy in Hawaii today is tremendously different. And to broadcast that too. I mean, yeah. it's tremendously different from what was happening in the 1950s when, you know, I'd write you a letter, maybe you'd write it back, it would take a while, I'd right. be thinking about it, or I might not, you know, but just that kind of pace of communication and the, but there's also a kind of overload or over, overwhelming uh, amount of information now. So now we have to like relearn how to sift through that information and rethink how we trust you know, who am I going to trust? What, how are we going to determine the rules of engagement in this kind of wild west of yeah. media overload? I think one of the things in the past is there are historical avatars or characters who carried a message and sometimes the history kind of collapses around them. So, you know, everybody knows about Timothy Leary or, mm -hmm. you know, lots of people know about Aldous Huxley, maybe everybody knows about him and they become sort of carriers of certain stories that are embedded in this history. And I think, We'll probably see that in the future, even with all of the kind of noise in this space. And, you know, you can find your favorite platform and pick your favorite avatar. But there are dominant voices in this space that are crafting the narrative of today, but also that will, I think, create that legacy going forward. I'd like to see us learn from the past and recognize that there were other voices that were muted out or drowned out. Um, and those perspectives are perhaps equally, if not even more important, as our previous conversation just yeah. highlighted, that maybe we need to, you know, build a different kind of soundstage. And sorry, that's an Owsley Stanley joke that's forming my mind about like, he amplified the Grateful Dead like no other while distributing acid on the side. I mean, who's our Owsley Stanley who's going to build the modern sort of amplifier for the 21st century, who's also thinking about how do we, you know, harness the power of technology and, you know, hearken the ghost of Marshall McLuhan to think about, you know, how are we like broadcast different messages and learn to appreciate different voices, not by pushing them off the platform or not letting them get up there in the first place. That's my like preamble to saying, I was sort of dared by a friend, um, you know, why don't we, you know, get past the narcissists with they're not all narcissists but like there's a lot of stories that are written by these like guys who left a big thick trail of records cool what about the people who like cleaned up their barf when they were going through some of these harrowing experiences what about the people who like took care of them when they kind of lost their way um or wrote the notes down while they were coherently trying to make sense and i, I don't mean to pick on them but these are real things that happen yeah um, and we know that, you know, these there were people around. These are not solo venturers, you know, as psychonautical as they might have been. They had friends, wives, daughters, sons who were carrying some of this burden for them. 
So we started by like, okay, let's just like start doing a, a series on this. And we did little blog posts. So I said, I'm going to do one a week until we run out of people or ideas. And after 75, I was like, okay, I need a break. It's <laughs> <laughs> like so much material. It's amazing. Um, but I just don't have the bandwidth to, to keep that up. Um, so we've, we've started working on a couple of books in this. Um, and part of it is it's fascinating to see not only people who are now, we're, we're trying to honor as pioneers, as pioneers sort of behind the scenes, the women who typed up things, the women who changed the music, you know, before some of the more famous guys got uh, noted for it, but also women who don't want to be named and don't want their practices to be revealed, but we wanted to think about how to honor them in respectful ways. So midwives who had been chastised and banished in some cases from the Middle Ages onwards for using different sacred medicines to control fertility. Some of these medicines have since come to be known as psychedelic. Ergot, of course, is sort of, you know, is moves through this and it's synthesized into LSD. So we wanted to honor those stories without um, undermining the desire and even the sort of like moral or ethical practice of also protecting them. So making things generic, but you know, drawing attention to some of the some of the tensions that continue to exist in naming some of these people who don't want to be named but carry a very important space. So kind of delving into the underground, but even in a like gendered twist on that. So it's been really fun. It makes me excited to, you know, think about sort of yeah. working in this space and drawing out these perspectives. And we picked women. Uh, there are other, uh, you know, there are other ways that we could also approach this. And I hope that other people do, because I think it really helps to furnish us with that kind of landscape of evidence that we need to add into the soup, if you will, as we think about that sustainable move forward. It's beautiful. It's really well said. It's, you know, a soup is nothing without all the ingredients in there. And for so long, it's like we've just had meat and we've only had this one kind of soup. It's it's sort of like our language. It's so linear in some way that it's, it's a beautiful project. And I I think everybody should be checking out. It's it's wonderful. I, I have a I have a question from the audience in here that they are wondering going back to um, well, here's here's our friend Hank. Hank asks us. He says, how do you feel about such deference to the plant and in respect, such as with indigenous people and peyote? I've been on the mind that it's just a molecule. So don't be tripping about how people take it, but some think that only their way or the highway. Yeah, you know, this is going to be really interesting as we see different jurisdictions approaching right. psychedelics in different ways. We see Oregon and California, uh, Colorado, and I will run out of American examples. Um, Alberta here in Canada has just, uh, well, in January, authorized psychiatrists to administer ketamine and psilocybin as they deem necessary. Now they still have to go through a bunch of applications in order to do that. But we're seeing jurisdictions and the law kind of if I in, interpret your question as like creating that highway or creating different kinds of highways. Um, so maybe we can all move to Oregon because, you know, they seem to have a really great and open idea. California seems to be following suit as far as I can follow that debate up till just last week, I think. Um, but there are also other alternatives. So we know the Native American church, if we think about peyote, has gone a different route in securing 
legal access through religious rights. And part of that is sort of claiming back some of the spiritual territory from a colonial regime saying like, no, 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 we, like this is an old practice and we are going to reclaim that. Um, that's a really different practice than going through the Oregon model, for example, of decriminalizing nature or, you know, so I, I'm going to take an optimistic route here and say that more of this, you know, we're sort of test driving different highways. I'll keep your driving uh, metaphor here. <laughs> and I'm not sure it's bad to see these different these different um, policies playing out right now. And I don't think there's any consensus yet. Um, I was maybe some of you on the call here have were at the conference in Denver recently. Mm -hmm. This massive 13,000 people, I think, is what they claimed. Um, Colorado made a lot of money off of cannabis. And the mayor was at, of Denver was at the conference and proudly, you know, saying like, hey, this was great. You know, like, <laughs> I, you know, and I, to me, I, this is where I want the yellow light. I'm like, oh, maybe I'm going to put the brakes on on this one. I don't know if that's the best path for psychedelics, but it is interesting to see, you know, some, some people are sort of exploring this as maybe this is, you know, we'll just go the same way of can as cannabis. Uh, we see examples of that in more municipalities. So Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, I can only name my Canadian examples right now. These cities have all decided to essentially turn a blind eye on small possession of psilocybin mushrooms. Now they haven't extended that to other psychedelics as far as I can tell, because it's not a law, it's a practice. And so we're starting to see like this, I don't know, maybe is that driving in the ditch? I'm, I'm not sure, or a widening of the highway. There are these different kinds of um, examples that are starting to, to come around. And in the past, there was a little bit of that. And then, you know, Richard Nixon was like, okay, one law. <laughs> now we're going to Tolkien this, you know, none yeah. shall be. Um, but, and the UN sort of picked up on that and brought this into an international moment of, you know, most uh, Cold War. So there are a few that didn't, uh, but, you know, many, many jurisdictions signed on to the UN declaration um, and, and, uh, put uh, psychedelics into that schedule one category you know these are not medically useful and they have high potential for addiction and as that language is pulled apart and now we have lots of neuroscience and psychiatric studies showing that that language just doesn't actually line up jurisdictions are playing with you know is this a cultural issue a medical issue a political issue an economic wow. issue i i don't know where the highway is going to lead us just yet but yeah. i, I Yes, I'm glad there are multiple roads or multiple paths to perhaps the same end. Mm -hmm. All all roads lead to Rome. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a it's a wonderful idea to think about, and it's it's an exciting time we live in. And I have. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Captain Al Hubbard? <laughs> so many thoughts <laughs> on Captain Al Hubbard. <laughs> um, my friend Jesse Donaldson, who's a, a writer in Vancouver, and I. We started writing a book having never met each other, which was really a fun and daunting experience, but it, it ended up well. We uh, we went down into the rabbit hole of Al Hubbard as we tried to write this book about Hollywood Hospital. We did end up writing the book, but as we were trying to, um, this is an enigma. Captain Tripp's Al Hubbard, the Johnny Appleseed of acid, of LSD, is this fascinating character who was a double agent during the alcohol prohibition he works for both sides in Seattle, who gets in trouble, but somehow charms his way out of all sorts of trouble. 
um, not so much with his ex-wives as I learned from <laughs> granddaughters, um, but a charming character, I don't know if anything he said was ever true. Um, and the records on him are just as difficult and fun to play with. He faked a PhD. He started calling himself doctor at some point after purchasing a diploma. Um, in fact, for the first little while, he would put quotation marks around PhD and doctor as he signed off. Like he recognized this was fake. He had a lot of money or he had a lot of contacts with money. So he ended up registering and at one point being the official distributor of LSD from Sandoz. He traveled around and um, dosed people. He often was known for not only having a side pistol, um, but also a carbogen tank. So a combination of um, carbon dioxide and oxygen, I believe. And he would give this to people to sort of prepare them for this experience. He was fascinated with the idea that the Catholic Church should really get turned on by psychedelics. And I think on this, he was more or less alone. His friends did not support him in this. And even some of the Catholic priests he eventually convinced to come into a psychedelic session bailed. Uh, one got scared and left before they even started. He's this fascinating character who like, you know, is kind of a bull in a china shop in some respects. And he's like forcing some of these things like we must, you know, get Catholicism in here. And he wasn't entirely wrong in the sense that there were these spiritual and even religious components. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, religious and theological context. Yeah. He was interested in music. How do we change the tempo of the experience by choreographing it with different music? Um, and his wife actually did quite a bit of that work as well, unnamed and, un, um, you know, she's not published, but you know, that's part of my other project. Mm -hmm. But there, he's this character who actually kind of puts a bunch of people in the same room that we might not otherwise have had. So he is one of those avatars who I think, you know, carries, um, kind of creates a thick line in this history. And also he's so full of shit. Um, <laughs> sorry, is that okay to say? Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. It's, it's so fascinating. We are, uh, we're coming up on our hour here, Dr. Erica, and I, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface right here. This is so much fun. I I would I want to point people to as much of your work as possible. What's the best way to do that? Where can people find like everything that you're doing and keep up to date with you? If anybody wants to update my website for me, that would be super awesome. Uh no, uh my my website at the University of Saskatchewan is the as updated as I am able to keep it. Um I, I will say there's uh, a fantastic collection. I'm, I'm the editor of this collection, but honestly, the really the labor and the work is an amazing group of up and coming scholars and voices who haven't necessarily been um, loud in this space. Uh, it's called Expanding Mindscapes. It's coming out in November with MIT Press. And, you know, we're we're trying to what we the call was basically like, tell me a story about psychedelics and its history that is not centered in the United States. Um, with all due respect, there are books on that and other people and we can point to them, but we wanted to sort of bring together these other voices. So we hired translators and we worked with a bunch of different people. And um, I, I, I think it is, um, it is certainly not comprehensive, but it is a wonderful first step into sort of opening up, you know, what happens in a Brazilian dictatorship, mm. a military dictatorship where being a countercultural, you know, radical has different kinds of consequences from, than going down to Haight-Ashbury and like, you know, hanging out with Jerry Garcia. And 
the authors make that connection. So I'm ventriloquizing them here. What happens in Czechoslovakia before the Soviets come in, where research on alcoholism is not allowed to be anonymous because they're in a, you know, a socialist space. And as that moves into a Sovietized space, the pressure to curb alcoholism without anonymizing people, because that's considered cult-like, changes the dynamics of how psychedelic psychiatry operates in that space and persists beyond what we see in the West, in part because it because of that. Yeah. You know, there was a, you know, a desire to persist in the East uh, for longer to prove that they were superior. Um, there's these fascinating stories, I think, that'll be, that'll draw on some familiar themes, but push us in different directions. And I hope um, sort of stimulate this conversation to continue looking elsewhere. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I want to talk to every one of those people. Like if anybody want, if anybody connected, I'll talk to you afterwards, but like, yeah. These are the kind of conversations that should be amplified, especially going into the direction we're going now. It's it's sort of like I don't. It kind of brings into the idea of this idea of time. Like you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Marseille Iliad, and he talks about sacred time versus profane time. And in some ways, we can experience the exact same time as other people, and that gets us back to the idea of ceremony and setting and. And I think we're doing that right now with the stream of consciousness. And I want to continue to do it because it's so much fun and <laughs> you're so fun to talk to and you uh, research thanks. so much. And it's, it's really beautiful. I, um, I'll talk to you briefly afterwards, but ladies and gentlemen, if you're as blown away as I am, please go check out everything she's written. It'll blow your mind. It'll take you a long time to get through stuff. There's just so much information she's researched, but it's beautiful. And if you want to know what's happening now, the best place and one of the best resources is Dr. Erica right here. So thank you so much for your time today. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you had a fantastic day. I hope that you understand that tomorrow is going to be even better and that the world is full of abundance. That's all we have for today. Ladies and gentlemen, aloha. All right. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.